This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 80. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Challenges in life can come in many forms, whether it's adversity through mental challenges or physical challenges, and sometimes it's both. But it's how you face those challenges that can determine your path. And our guest this episode, Jim Abbott, has more than faced those challenges. He's actually succeeded. Jim was a starting pitcher in the major leagues for 10 years, despite being born without a right hand. He wouldn't let that perceived disability affect his ability as he would earn the Jim E. Sullivan Award while pitching for the University of Michigan as the top amateur athlete in 1987, becoming the first baseball player to ever receive the award. He would then be drafted eighth overall by the California Angels in the 1988 MLB draft and would pitch for four teams in the majors over his 10-year career. And on September 4, 1993, he would join an exclusive club by pitching a no-hitter as a member of the New York Yankees. Michigan would retire his number 31 in 2009 after Jim was elected into the College Baseball Hall of Fame in 2007. And in 2012, he would share his story in his autobiography titled Imperfect and Improbable Life. Here's episode 80 with Jim Abbott. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning early out there in California. And hopefully I'm not interrupting your morning routine right now. (laughs) No, no, you're... uh actually helping me to put off my early morning workout here. So this is good. (laughs) (laughs) And so give me the landscape then right now. Uh, You obviously have been retired from Major League Baseball, but do you still have a workout routine that you do each morning? I do. I'm, you know, I'm one of those guys who needs to exercise to kind of clear my mind and uh, try to stay in shape. I probably like to eat a little too much and, and have a little too much fun, so I have to balance it out with uh, some workouts in the morning. But uh, I live out in Southern California and live in a great area, so I've got plenty of options you know, around here. I can head down to the beach or I can ride bikes and do lots of fun stuff. So it's part of the lifestyle, and I, I really enjoy it. And is it more of you're focusing on cardio? Or are you still lifting weights, or what does it consist of? Uh, I've always been a cardio guy. I, you know, as you get older, I, I know that you need to lift some weights, and and uh, and particularly stretching is what I'm not great at. I, I wish I was uh, more disciplined in that regard. But uh, cardio is my, my main focus. I just try to you know get work up a sweat and and uh, stay in in shape and and uh, try to stay as flexible as possible. Well, that's a challenge I think for all of us. As I'm approaching 50 years old myself, I'm 47, and I 
often joke that I'm as stiff as a two by four, that I am so <laughs> inflexible. <laughs> so I can, I understand your dilemma of wanting to be more flexible. Now, when you were playing, did you have a stretching routine or did you have more flexibility at that time? I imagine it had to be somewhat important for you to have some type of flexibility as a pitcher. You know, that's an interesting question. I, um, I wish I would have been more diligent in the stretching. I did, you know, the team mandated stretching before every practice and every game, and and, uh, and I was fairly flexible. But um, if there's one thing that I look back on my career, to be honest, is is uh, maybe I focused a little bit too much on the weights and and um, not not as much on flexibility. You know, I, I got. Um, I got much bigger and 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 may I don't know if bulky is the word for it but uh, I definitely wish I would have come across some of the other forms of training maybe pilates yoga those kinds of things because I you know I don't think necessarily every pitcher is fairly interesting I I really think every pitcher has you know a different routine and a different uh, way of working out that benefits them, and and I modeled myself after a couple of guys on our team who lifted weights, and and um, while that might have been good for them, I, I'm not so sure that it was always great for me. So, um, you know, everybody's got to find their balance and what works for them and their body, and and um, you know, I think it's important that pitching coaches and and teams understand that and not try just to pigeonhole everybody into the same type of conditioning program. And who were some of those guys that you modeled your workouts after? Well, you know, I I've spent a lot of time with Mark Langston. I spent a lot of time with with Chuck Finley. Um, you know, early in my career, and those were guys who pushed some weights around and and uh, were, were were very strong guys. And and um, you know, I, I find it actually fascinating. I don't know how interesting it is to everybody else, but I do too. Um, Seriously, no, I, I agree. Yeah, you know, pit. Pitching, and particularly starting pitching, is a, you know, there's a lot of downtime and a lot of time in between starts. You know, you have those four or five days in, the, in between, you know, one start to the next. And, um, you know, you look to fill it. You know, you, you get to the ballpark early and, and you have these great facilities at your at your beck and call. And, and you can, you, you try to stay busy. And, and sometimes you equate working hard with, you know, jumping in that weight room and, and and you know, getting stronger and in improving your performance, and and it's all well intentioned. Um, but I wonder sometimes, you know, how good or bad it is for for different guys. You know, you, you have to really think about what's important. I play with Bert Blylevin, the Hall of Famer. You know, great guy. I loved Bert and admired his work ethic and um, you know the way he went about his career. And I don't think I ever saw him pick up a weight heavier than three pounds. <laughs> <laughs> He would just go run distance, and and he was diligent about it. And um, I know distance running now is kind of frowned upon in in, in conditioning circles and MLB. So I find all that really fascinating. I, I do, you know, find it interesting how guys are training and and improve performance. Obviously, you have guys who are throwing, you know, harder than they ever did now in, in Major League Baseball. So um, you know that routine is is really something that you have to figure out in as a starting pitcher in major league baseball and and um and, and personalize and, and and figure out what's best for you and how long did that take you once you got to the majors to get into a routine that you felt comfortable with and as you mentioned i mean there's four or five days that you're not actually in the game you're not pitching so how, how did you 
come about getting to that routine of and being comfortable? It it didn't take me very long. Um, you know, uh, I like I was able to really follow some great pitchers. You know, early in my career, like I mentioned, we had you know Mark Langston and Chuck Finley and Kirk McCaskill and Burt Blylevin. You know, those guys, Mike Witt, they were all part of our pitching staff, and each of them were, were really hard workers. So uh, you, it was very, you know, you fell in line very quickly by watching what they did and how they took care of themselves and, and what they did in between starts. And, um, you know, I laugh, Buck Showalter, our manager with the Yankees when I was there, used to kid the starting pitchers, you know, every day as we walked down to watch another game and, and between starts he would just chuckle and say, you know, you starting pitchers have the best job in the world. <laughs> you only pitch to you know twenty percent of the time, and and I agree with him with and that. But uh, only when you win. If you lose, it's uh, there's a lot of time to kill, and you're very anxious to get right back out there and and try to prove yourself again. Yeah, you had the pressure of this was your time in the spotlight, and you had to perform extremely well. Obviously, as you mentioned, trying to win those games. So, how did you deal with those times where? You had a poor performance, and then you had to sit there for four days before you got another chance to prove yourself again. How difficult was that, and how did you handle that? You know, that's really tough. I'll be honest with you. It, uh, like I said, it's the best job in the world when you when you win. You can sit back. Those four days seem to fly right by, and, and you know you get your routine, and um, you know it's great. It's just there's there's no happier time. You just you you're on top of the world, but when you lose, you know you're you're frustrated. You oftentimes you're still playing the same team that you lost to, so you have to go back and watch that same team again the next day, and and you're replaying the game in your mind, and and you know that was one of the things that uh, I th- challenges of a starting pitcher is to assimilate back into the clubhouse. You know, be a good teammate. Uh, you know, be someone, you know, who's a positive influence in the clubhouse and, and not withdraw. And I struggled with that. I, I, I think I was a good teammate. I, I like to think that no matter what was going on in my own world, you know, I was able to be a, a positive influence. But um, it wasn't always easy. And I think any starting pitcher will confess to that. Now, were you a prankster when during your off days or just even in the locker room? Were you a guy that joked around and and you hear stories of, you know, these pitchers or whatever having some type of pranks they used to play on people. Were you part of that? <laughs> I was never really a big prankster. I um but I was always seemed to be friends with the guys who were. So I, <laughs> I sat back and watched and laughed and um you know, those I, I was never quite as creative as some of those other guys who thought of those things and to do, but uh, some of it was pretty pretty funny, I have to say. So do you have any particular stories as far as what you thought was, I mean, just extremely funny or very creative what you saw some of these guys do? Well, I think the funniest one, but it's a, it's a very long story. <laughs> uh, Robin Ventura, who I played with on the Olympic team and then uh, had a chance to play with in the, in, in the White Sox, was was one of the funniest guys I know and beloved in a clubhouse and, and could say anything to anybody and be respected. And he was a leader and, and he did, you know, he was, he was always coming up with something. He was, he, uh, one year, um, <laughs> one year, Frank Thomas was, was having a great year and, and, and it was getting a lot, a lot of attention and, um, the team was stretching in, in either Boston or New York. I wasn't sure. And, 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 um, 
one of the ushers in the stadium was yelling at Frank when the team was was stretching on the field, and he started calling Frank Baby Shaq. Uh, you know, in reference to Shaquille O'Neal, who was kind of becoming famous at the time as well, and, and somehow this guy was referring to Frank and, and Shaquille as being similar. <laughs> and Frank didn't like the comparison. He was, you know, not Baby Shaq, you know, Frank <laughs> and the whole thing. And it was fun. It became this long standing. Robin picked up on it and had people start calling Frank Baby Shaq, and, and Frank couldn't stand it. And finally, it culminated one day Robin hired an airplane to fly over Comiskey Park with a sign trailing behind it that said, Baby Shaq for President, (laughs) during the game. And Frank Frank saw it and was upset about it and demanded to know who did it. The the whole time, I think he knew exactly who did it. So uh, that was an elaborate one and probably not a deep one. But, uh, you know, I guess that's the kind of thing that keeps Major League players entertained. Well, that was very creative. There is no question about that. Now... You know, we've talked a lot about some of the things in your career in the major leagues, but I also want to step back into you know, your journey as before you got into the major leagues and looking at you know why you gravitated towards sports. And obviously, you have a unique story, born with a disability of not having a right hand. So, what are some of the earliest memories that you have of gravitating sports, and especially sports where? traditionally you wouldn't think that you might gravitate towards like baseball because of this so-called perceived disability. You know, I, I grew up a little bit differently than other kids. Um, I was born, you know, missing my right hand, basically. And, um, you know, so that made it a, a little more interesting childhood, to be honest with you. I, I don't pretend that it was, um, you know, I'm, I was very fortunate. I know there's a lot of people in this world who have it a lot worse than me. Um, but I grew up a little bit different, and, and I grew up, you know, sometimes a little lonely, a little bit on the outside looking in. And, and so sports really called to me. Um, sports were a big, big, big part of the culture of my hometown in Flint, Michigan. And, you know, the high school varsity teams, the high school varsity jackets from around the city, all that really struck home with me and called to me. So. I wanted to be on those teams. I wanted to be like those athletes that I looked up to, and 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 I wanted to fit in. And um, I don't know if I, you know, naturally felt it that way as a kid, but I look back on it now, and I, I'm pretty sure that was part of the motivation. So, um, I just wanted to get in the game, and that's that's what kids did in Michigan. You know, we we played sports. We 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 played basketball inside in the winter, and baseball in the summer, and football in the fall, and. And that's what all my friends did. If we had any free time, we found an open field somewhere, made a makeshift, you know, uh, diamond or football field and and, and got after it. And, um, you know, it didn't matter if it didn't make any sense or if it wasn't the most logical thing for me to do. I just, I found a little bit different way of going about things and and, um, found a way to be proficient at it. and, And, you know, baseball ended up being the thing that I loved the most. Yeah, and was that early on that you fell in love with baseball the most, or did that evolve over time? I think a little bit of both. I, you know, I was I was good at it. <laughs> I, I could throw. I, I really I could always throw things. I could throw rocks. I could throw whatever it was in front of me, and and um, and so I gravitated to baseball, and I and I bugged my 
little league coach to pitch and and I finally had a chance and I think I walked as many as I struck out but I you know it, it was something that from the very get go I you know it was that pat on the back that that um, that I longed for and and that that approval and and that success and and, and so um I I just attached myself to the game and 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 really came to love it for a lot of different reasons and 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 evolving reasons you know as I got older um but I always loved the game I loved the Detroit Tigers in Michigan I loved Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker and Jack Morris and Tiger Stadium and uh you know all those things called to me I was a big Tigers fan growing up now but I grew up in Georgia but I became a fan of all things Magnum PI and seeing Tom Selleck with the Detroit Tigers hat on. <laughs> and then yeah. so I started following the Tigers. So when you mention those names, uh, those are names of my childhood as well. So I can understand how you looked up to those type of players. And, and you mentioned the aspect of looking for approval and that pat on the back. So was that motivation for you in terms of that's what motivated you, the approval, or were you motivated also to prove people wrong that saw you with a disability and you wanted to show them that you could actually play? I think that's an interesting question. I, I don't, um, I don't remember it as being an outward or an obvious motivational force of trying to prove people wrong. I, I think, I, I do think it was there. I do think it was buried underneath the surface of, of what I felt. Um, you know, I wanted to be good. I wanted, I wanted, you know, I enjoyed being, you know, I, I, I really had a drive and an ambition and, and, and sometimes it was ugly and sometimes it wasn't pleasant and it showed itself in, in ways that I wasn't always proud of. Um, but I wanted to be good. And, and, and I think somewhere buried underneath all of that was, was, the idea of, of of showing people that you know you're not defined by your outward appearance, and I wasn't defined just by being born without my right hand, and and uh, those are all sort of complicated, complex things to come to terms with as you're growing up. And I don't think that you feel them in, in outward ways. Um, I think they manifest themselves in in, in different uh, passions and 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 outlets, and and that's kind of the story of my childhood. And did that extend even into your professional career? I mean, did you have moments of self-doubt as well, even when you were pitching in the majors? Absolutely. You know, self-doubt was something that I battled with um, every time I took the field, um, every time I prepared to take the field the day before. You know, it was something that I had to to battle, and, and, and I think that's an interesting thing to mention to young kids and kids who dream of playing baseball at a high level I think sometimes you look at a major league player and you think oh wow it was a it was a gilded path you know they never struggled with demons they never struggled you know it was always just a confident route and and while that might be true for for some uh, I've seen it too many times firsthand to know that that many times you know being successful is, is those people who can manage that self-doubt who can channel it and and rise above it and and be able to perform their best you know when called upon so uh yeah i i, I battled that quite a bit i i did a lot of work to overcome you know the the, the feelings of anxiousness and, and 
and uh, you know the fear of failure. And who helped you with that? Who was some of the support mechanism that you had? Well, I think you know I I really got into the mental game, um, especially when I got to the major leagues. You know, when you're younger, you just you play, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it, it comes easier. It seems you know, and, and maybe that's the kind of attitude you try to channel into later in life. But you know, as you go up against the best competition in the world, you understand how much of the mental part of the game is becomes you know important and and so I had great mentors in that way Marcel Latchman my pitching coach with the uh with the Angels when I first started was a, you know tremendously interested in the and the mental side of the game we had a, a great friend of the team back then Ken Revisa um who was a mental coach and sadly just just passed away a couple of weeks ago and and uh, left a, a huge imprint on the game. You won't hear him hear his name much, but he worked with a lot of people, and, and he worked a lot with a lot of people. You know about preparation and battling. You know those things that can inhibit performance, and, and um, so I was fortunate. You know I worked with a lot of great people. Harvey Dorfman was another one, a great mental coach, um, and you know those guys. It's interesting. It's fun because that exploration tends to bleed out into, you know, your real life and not just your performance on the field. You tend to find things out about yourself when you when you when you really get down deep into why you have this self doubt and why you may not feel up to the challenge at any particular time. So um I love that I love that part of the, the game and, and you know, those four days in between starts I often spent you know, really working on that side of, the, of, of my performance. If from a technical standpoint, how are you training yourself to be able to be a pitcher uh, ultimately in the major leagues one day in terms of switching the glove over to your hand and being ready to field? I mean, how, how did you prepare yourself for that? <laughs> well, I took great pride in my in my fielding. I I, I wanted to. You know, I didn't want that to be perceived as a weakness, um, you know, by my team or by my opponents. And um, it was something that I really worked on, you know, and, and in a fun way, too. I, we, When I was with the Angels um, early in my career, we had a wonderful coach. His name was Jimmy Reese. And Jimmy was, was older. Um, I think he may have been nearing his 80s when, when I first came across him. And he, you know, sat on the bench and he tracked pitches and he, and he had a long, wonderful history in the game and everybody loved him. Uh, but his gift to me, other than his friendship, was we would go out in the outfield during batting practice. <laughs> and Jimmy would, you know, he would be hunched over and uh, he, he, he's walking out in batting practice and balls are flying everywhere. I mean, it looked like Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now. You know, the ball never seemed to hit Jimmy. I don't know how or why, but he just walked right through it. And, uh, he'd come out to the outfield and he'd put two hats about 15 feet apart. And he would have the pitchers go through their motion and pretend to throw a ball and he would hit fungos. And, and he would, he had this sawed off Reggie Jackson baseball bat that Reggie had given him and he sawed off half of it so it was real light and he was accurate as could be with this fungo bat and he and I developed this rapport where I would go through my motion with the glove off and I would you know 
almost game speed, kind of go through it and fire, and then and then he would hit the ball with perfect timing, and and like it was real life in a game. And I would have to get that glove back on and, and field it, and not let the ball slip between those two hats in the outfield. And we would do it ten times. And if he, you know, if if I didn't get all ten, then I owed him a coke. And uh, if, if he got, you know, if 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 I got ten, then he owed me a coke. But I tried to be on the on the positive side of the ledger with the cokes over the years. Those are some high stakes Coca Colas, right? Were, yeah, they were high stakes. I don't think anybody ever paid, but uh, he he loved to, you know, it was more about the, um, you know, the banter, and he was very quick witted, and he would tease you a lot. And, um, he took great pride in, in slipping one by the pitchers, and, and, and I love those times. I miss him. I have a picture in my office that I'm looking at of, of he and I doing that right now. And, and um, you know, besides being a lot of fun, it, it really helped me to develop my timing to field the ball proficiently. And, um, you know, I give a lot of credit to Jimmy Reese for those reasons. What about from a hitting perspective? Because, I mean, you obviously were in high school. You would bat, and even in the, the majors, did you take batting practice? I mean, did you do all of that? I mean, I know you played uh, most of your career in the American League with a designated hitter, but you also spent time in the National League. So was that a pride thing as well? <laughs> well, yeah, I love to hit. Um Actually, I didn't love to hit when I got to the big league because I figured out how hard it was. Uh, I loved to hit in high school. Uh, you know, I fancied myself pretty good. I had a good average. I hit some home runs and hit in the middle of the lineup and, and, and had a positive impact. But as I grew up, the coaches seemed less and less uh, uh, impressed <laughs> with my swing. So um, I did play in the National League. I got a couple hits with the Brewers and um, – uh, you know, I can't tell you my average, but I did get a couple base hits, got a couple RBIs, and nothing is sweeter than the the crack of the bat and, and hitting one into the outfield and uh, playing the playing the game like a position player, rounding the bases, running the bases, and, and uh, you know that's a pretty cool way to play the game. And did you ever think about uh, moving from a starting pitcher to a relief pitcher? Was that ever discussed in your career? I did a little bit at the end of my career. Um, I was pitching out of the bullpen. Um, I I didn't. I, I don't remember liking it as much as, as being a starting pitcher. I liked the routine of of being a starter. I liked the responsibility of being a starter, and um, the game was just a little bit different then. You know, um, the, the relievers didn't have quite of a structured role as they do now, and and and. And so not knowing when exactly you were going to pitch and, and, and uh, all of that, you know, I, I, I don't know that I fully embraced it. I, 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 had I known that, you know, I maybe could have held on for a little while and not been so prideful of, of trying to be always be a starting pitcher, um, you know, may, maybe I should have embraced it a little bit more and, and, and somehow found a way to carve out a role out there. But uh, for whatever reason, I always kind of thought of myself as a starting pitcher, and, and um, you know that was always my goal and, and and how I wanted to play. And what was that day like that you you leave the University of Michigan, forego your senior year, and you get drafted eighth overall by the Angels? Was that surreal for you? It was. It was. I, um, you know, it it, it was very improbable. Coming from Flint, Michigan, and I can still see the 
little league fields where we played as kids and uh, Flint Central High School and then, you know, went to the University of Michigan, which gave me, you know, so many opportunities and gave me the exposure and chance to play for the USA teams. And then, you know, I played in the USA teams with some really great players and, and had a chance to play with some of the best college players in the country. And I knew the scouts were looking at them. I knew that they were going to get a chance to play professionally and, and get a signing bonus. And um, when that day came for, for me and, and, you know, there was always debate, you know, whether or not I could do it, whether or not the professional game, you know, would be too fast or, or all those things. And uh, when the Angels drafted me in the first round, it, it, um, it really was one of the highlights of my life and, and something that, I, you know, really just so happy for, you know, for my parents, for my family, and, and to have that chance to go out and, and play with the best players in the world. Yeah, and who was the toughest hitter that you ever had to face? God, there's so many of them, Richmond. I can't <laughs> <laughs> They were all hard, you know. I, I, I struggled against, you know, uh, George Brett was early in my career. I, I um I think I single-handedly got him the batting title one year. You know, he would he would be on the disabled list and come off the disabled list as soon as I came to town and, and uh, get himself three hits. Um, you know, he he really he was he was tough. And Edgar Martinez, I remember, uh, you know, like a lot of pitchers, we all had trouble with him. And um, you know, the Oakland A lineups back in the day were just ridiculous. You had McGuire and Canseco, but the guy who killed me and killed my friend Mark Langston was Dave Henderson. You know, you'd get through, you know, the meat of that order and then all of a sudden Hendu was waiting there, you know, in in the sixth hole or the fifth hole and, and um he gave us fits too. So um yeah, those are all bad memories. I don't want to talk about I that. can understand. <laughs> well let's talk about a good memory and that's September fourth, nineteen ninety three of you pitching a no hitter for the Yankees against the Cleveland Indians in Yankee Stadium. So was there a special routine that morning, or was this just a normal day for you, is at least how you approached it? Well, gosh, I can't believe it was 25 years ago. Um, it, uh, it was a different day because I, I had struggled my last time out, um, and it hadn't been a great season, to tell you the truth. It was my first year with the Yankees, and, and uh, I had been traded there, and you know, with with high expectations of, of being a, a front end, front of the rotation contributor. And uh, I think I don't I don't know what my record was at that point, but I believe I was under 500. And and, and the, my last outing came against the Cleveland Indians, and I was uh, I was terrible. You know, I don't think I got out of the third inning, and and I was frustrated. It was a low point in the in the year, um, and. So I went into that no hitter game, uh, you know, very. Uh, it was just a hard feeling to describe. I, I kind of bounced off the bottom of the season, you know. It was just disappointing, and um, and so I went in that game in, entirely focused, um, a little, you know, on edge because of the of the bad game before, but but somewhat lighthearted in 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 some aspects, just because. It was like, what else could happen? You know? <laughs> and 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 so I think it was an interesting recipe for for pitching. You know, I was I was I was definitely on edge. I was definitely you know I didn't want to to go out there and do poorly again. 
Um, but also, I was uh, somehow, some way, a little lighthearted that day, and, and I think that helped. And so, from that perspective, as you're getting through the fourth or fifth, sixth inning, what is it like then in the dugout, in between innings, and even out there on the field? I mean, are people talking about it, or is it what we hear about people are avoiding you, they don't want to jinx it? What was those moments leading up to the ninth inning like? Well, it, it, it's amazing. You know, I, I remember, you know, about the fifth inning, I think we were winning four to nothing. And uh, I looked up at the scoreboard and it did not feel like a, a you know, a no hitter. I had given up some hard hit balls. I was a little wild. I gave up some walks and, um, you know, it was a battle out there. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a masterpiece by any means. And so when you look up at the scoreboard and all those things are going on and, and, and you don't see any hits in the, in the Indians column, it, 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 it really struck me and, and I was like, whoa, you know, I honestly was a little bit surprised. And, um, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, that seriousness, that hopefulness starts to creep into your mind a little bit, you know, those things that can distract you a little bit from the task at hand. And, um, and that's what a no-hitter becomes, you know, a battle with, with staying in the moment, you know. Um, it's always there for a pitcher, I, I guess, for a lot of athletes, you know, to, to, to balance that hopefulness for a result and with the process that is required. And, and that's exactly the tension that went into those final, you know, four or five innings. Yeah, so because as you mentioned, you're not only battling, obviously, the opponent, the Cleveland Indians, which that team was, that was a roster of hitters there as well that you were having to face, but you're also having to battle, I guess, yourself as well from a certain aspect. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost 50-50 at that point, um, and, and maybe more because, you feel it, you know. I felt it in my heart, in my knees, in my breathing, in the excitement. In in the uh, Matt Noakes was the catcher that day for the Yankees, and and a, and a positive, enthusiastic guy. And I could see the smile behind his mask. You know, I could feel it in the dugout. And, <laughs> and there was a lightheartedness. You know, I that I tried to maintain that even as as the game and the results were progressing. You know, but. My buddies, Jimmy Key and, and Scott Kamenicki and, uh, you know, those guys are, you know, we were laughing and having fun, but all of a sudden they're two or three feet away and they're looking <laughs> down and looking, nobody's talking to you, you know. And there's, you know, there's all these different things that go into it that don't truly help you, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, you need it to still continue to be lighthearted. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's a battle, you know, you, you anybody... I was not oblivious to what was going on, and and I certainly uh, wanted it to happen. And um, but what really helped me earlier in the year, I had a no hitter um, late in the game against the Chicago White Sox too, and it was a similar game. I think it was four nothing, uh, and then I gave up kind of a little flare. I made a good pitch to Bo Jackson, and he flared a ball out into center field and it was a base hit and and it was a good pitch and and it was you know there's nothing you can do about that so and then the next hitter Ron Karkovice hit a home run and so that was four to two and so they, <laughs> that experience weighed heavily on on the no hitter because I knew how fragile it was you know it had been it was 
right there in front of me in, in recent memory of, of just you can make a good pitch and, and somebody can get a base hit. So, you know, that's where that lightheartedness comes in. It was just more, if this is going to happen, let it happen. But I'm going to keep making my pitches. And, and um, that's how I felt. How long did it take you to come down off of that euphoric high of pitching a no-hitter? Oh, it was so great. It was just so neat. Um, you know, my wife was already in the tunnel between the clubhouse and the dugout, and we hugged after the game. And uh, The Yankees had already had a bottle, a huge bottle of champagne in my locker. We were <laughs> celebrating with my teammates, and uh, Matt Noakes and I took a curtain call. The fans wouldn't leave the stadium. And, um, you know, my wife and I walked around New York City that night, and um, people were buying a champagne and in the early edition of the Sunday papers was already on the newsstands and signing autographs and people honking horns and running across the street. And, uh, it was a magical night. You know, it really was it. I, I don't know that I wish everybody could feel that energy of New York city and that celebration. And, and, um, you know, I've always been treated incredibly well every place I ever played and New York, especially the fans, uh, you know, really, really treated me well. And, and, and to share that moment and that night and that game with, with them and the city and the Yankee organization, um, you know, is something that I cherish, you know, to this, to this day. And where did you enjoy your career the most? At what stop? It's hard to say. I enjoyed when I pitched well. <laughs> I didn't enjoy when I didn't pitch well. And, and, and that sounds simple, and, and but it's true. You know, it, it, MLB is, is incredibly competitive. It's tough. You know, there's a lot of people who want your job every single day. And some of them are in your own clubhouse. And so, you know, when you're not, doing well when when you're scratching and clawing and you know holding on to your place in the rotation and holding on to your place in the team and holding on to your place in the game um you know those things push you right to the limits of 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 you know how you handle yourself and 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 it's not always easy, you know, to separate that from your personal life, you know, when it's your job, when it's when things are truly on the line. You know, um, that becomes tough, and, and it's not always easy to, even though it's so glamorous and it's such a great lifestyle, and it's, you know, the pay is wonderful and the ballparks are amazing. Um, you know, performance dictates a lot of time how you feel, and, and, and that influenced how I felt in certain places. And, and then the opposite is true as well. When you're winning, it's so exciting, it's so fun. And, and everything seems to be the greatest place in the world. I can imagine. How contentious, or was there ever contentious moments or discussions as a manager's coming to the mound to take you out of the game? And what are those conversations like? Uh, you know, I never really had too many contentious confrontations. You know, I I guess that's just the way I was raised you know I, I I respected the coaches and I respected managers and, and I oftentimes you know it was their decision to make and and I, I may have wanted to stay in at a certain point I may have you know may have felt they left me out there a little too long I don't know but you know I, I never felt you know any 
any frustration with anybody else that I was being taken out of a game than, than with myself. And um, I definitely had a temper, and I definitely, you know, took losing hard. I took my frustrations out on, you know, many a, many a clubhouse chair and, <laughs> <laughs> and things, that, you know, and, and, and so that's when that frustration showed itself. I, I, I tried to be as stoic as I could on the field and, and with my coaches and, and managers and, and um, you know, the frustration showed itself in other ways. As you've had your journey and career, one of the things that I always ask everybody is looking back on their career and just any words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you that helped shape your career. We know sports obviously helped shape your career tremendously, but were there any phrases, quotes, mottos, or just life advice that you leaned on over the years that you would like to share? Well, I... You know, if I were to look back at a younger self, if I were to look back at myself, I would, I would, you know, just say to, to embrace it, and and I and I can say, and I really feel like I did a pretty good job of that. You know, I, I never took it for granted. I never took for granted walking into Camden Yards or Arlington or Toronto or New York, Fenway. You know, those that was a dream. That was a privilege. You know, and to be able to go to work in those places. Um, it, it's just so fleeting, you know, it just goes so fast. And, you know, there's times when I sit here now and I, I, I don't even feel like I ever played in the big leagues. It seems so long ago. And I see these guys getting to do the things that I took for granted back then. And I, I'm so envious, you know, and I miss it so much and I, I dream about it. And so I guess my advice is, is to live in the moment, you know, to really, really, be able to breathe and look around and 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 embrace you know how fortunate you are to be where you are uh, even though it's tough even though it's competitive and, and even though you 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 might be in the fight of your life um, to enjoy that because there aren't many things post baseball that will push you quite to that degree also looking back have you had time to ever really reflect and think about what your life would be without sports? <laughs> uh, that's a scary thought. It's a really scary thought. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it's just always played such a huge part in my life. And, and um, I watch sports now. It doesn't really matter what sport it is. I, I love to watch, you know, competition on TV. I have two daughters who are involved in sports. Um, it's just part of our family fabric and, and um, no I, I, I can't imagine my life without sports I can't imagine I, I just I love competition it, it it's not always easy you know and and sometimes I see the heartbreak my daughters go through on the field or um, you know the struggle they have to 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 be you know a good player and and it's not easy, you know. They you lose, you know. Girls beat you out, um, and, and sometimes you wonder, would I be better off without this? And I just don't believe that to be the case, you know. It, there's so many different explorations within competition and within sport that allow us windows into who we are as people, and 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 gives us invaluable lessons, uh, and you know, so that we're able to deal with the real life challenges, you know in a more practiced way. And, and, and so I can't imagine my life without 
having gone through the the, the joy and the and the struggle of sport. Well, it's obvious that sports can impact so many people and just how how it shapes individuals and it has shaped your life as well. And Jim, I can't thank you enough for spending the time talking about that. And uh, it's been an honor being able to talk to you today. Richmond, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, we <laughs> the uh, it was just a different perspective and a different way of looking at things. And, and uh, I enjoyed our discussion. Thanks for having me. Life isn't always about being perfect, and even being born with an imperfection doesn't mean you can't strive for greatness, and sometimes it might even be that strive for acceptance, as Jim focused on as a kid. But sometimes a certain disability allows you the ability that can't really be measured of this somewhat hyper-focus, which allows you to be pushed beyond certain areas of your life where you might be imperfect. Now that finishes episode 80. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 